0: Welcome to the Bernie Madoff episode of Slate Money Criminals, your guide to the business and finance criminals of recent history. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello. And with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. And yes, we are covering one of the greatest financial criminals of them all, Mr. Bernard Madoff, with... The man who spent, how long, Joe, did you spend like, looking into this man and what he did?
1: Uh, I think we spent about a you know, good 14 months making this show.
0: You are Joe Berlinger. You made a four-part documentary series on Netflix, um, all about Bernie Madoff, which is there right now and will, will be forever. So yes, who are you? Introduce yourself.
1: I am a maker of documentaries and occasional scripted films. Uh, I've done films like Brothers Keeper and Paradise Lost, which helped lead to the release of the wrongfully convicted West Memphis Three. I made a film about Metallica called Some Kind of Monster that some people know. Uh, I've spent a lot of time doing serial killers of late Bundy tapes and uh, the Ted Bundy movie with Zac Efron. Uh, But I am secretly uh, a finance geek stock market geek so i wanted to take on the bernie
0: madoff story it's definitely an amazing story we are going to talk about what he did how he did it who he was aided and abetted by who the winners were who the losers were whether he's an evil genius and it's all coming (laughs) up on slate money criminals even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life.
1: No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: What is it about Bernie Madoff that requires slash justifies 240 minutes of Netflix talk?
1: Well, I feel like his story has been told a little incorrectly over the years. Um, You know, Bernie has been kind of mythologized as this evil genius who pulled the wool over the eyes of Wall Street and pulled the wool over the eyes of the general population uh, as if he was a singular evil
0: genius. Was he evil and was he a genius?
1: Well, I do think he was evil, depending on what your definition of evil is. I liken him to being a financial serial killer, and he shared a lot of the qualities with some of the serial killers I've profiled over the years, Bundy, Gacy, uh, Dahmer.
2: How did he share qualities of a serial killer? Can you say a little bit more about that?
1: Well, first of all, the serial killer lacks empathy. You can't do the things you do to people as a serial killer and have any kind of human empathy. I would say the same thing with Bernie Madoff. You can't look a widow in the eye and encourage her to give you all her money and, and have any amount of empathy, you can't do what he did to his family, which is a Shakespearean tragedy in and of itself. Uh, you know, if you had any empathy, true empathy, serial killers justify their actions and think ultimately there's a way out. And often they blame the victims. That's one of the things in the, in the show that I did for Netflix that you see is him blaming his victims. And that's classic serial
0: killer. In what way did, did Madoff blame his victims, when and where?
1: He often talked about his big institutional investors having a hold over him. There's depositions that you will see in, in the show where he talks about <laughs> it's, his victims were so greedy, the industry was so greedy, uh, and he, he, he did not take any responsibility for it. Uh, he turned himself in, of course, at the end, but... That's not taking responsibility. The jig was up at that point.
2: Can we back up a little bit? And for, I don't know, the one person listening who doesn't know what Bernard Madoff did, can we just (laughs) lay it out a little bit? Because I have to admit, I knew he had a Ponzi scheme where he took people's money and pretended to invest it. And his returns were, what were they, 10% every year without fail. But he was just, he wasn't investing the money at all. I hadn't really realized he had this whole other legitimate business that he was wealthy from, in its own right.
0: Yeah, he like invented high frequency trading. He was the chairman of the Nasdaq. He. This is the crazy thing, which like, I can't. I. I don't really understand. I think a lot of people don't understand. Is the, it doesn't look like he was motivated by greed. That all of like, yeah, he had a very fancy lifestyle, but his fancy lifestyle could definitely have been supported by his legitimate earnings from you know, the legitimate business?
1: Yeah, that's the fascinating, unanswerable question. From the start of his career, he was a smart investor and an innovator. As you said, he was the chairman three times of the NASDAQ market. He basically invented electronic trading that we know it today. You know, I can go on my account on Schwab and you know, within seconds, buy 100 shares of AT&T or whatever at the best price possible because there's price transparency in today's trading. Um, And back then, you, you had to pay a commission of $29, $30, $129, it was kind of the Wild West. And he took all those opaque markets and created one giant computer screen, so to speak, and revolutionized electronic trading, which democratized Wall Street for a lot of people. Uh, it lowered prices, there was greater transparency, it brought regular people into the market. And we owe him actually a great debt for democratizing the markets, and he would have made a lot of money as a market maker. A market maker is somebody who is a middleman. He warehouses stock and buys and sells stock and makes a little bit of money on
0: the spread. And as you point out. Like in terms of the market maker's obligation to just step in and take the other side of every trade, he comes out um, absolutely wearing like a heroic white hat from the crash of 87, where all of the other market makers kind of hide under a rock and don't pick up the phone. And he's picking up the phone and buying and buying and buying as everyone else is selling.
1: Knowing he was going to lose money. He said, we're not going to be the firm that doesn't pick up a phone. We're going to honor our obligations. And that furnished his reputation. It made the regulatory agencies feel like he's somebody to go to, to talk to, to be a trusted elder statesman. And this career would have been an excellent career. <laughs> had he just stuck with that, he would have made plenty of money. And you're right. He did not live a lavish lifestyle compared to other people with the kind of wealth he'd been. Sure, he had multiple homes. He had a nice penthouse apartment. But he didn't live the kind of lifestyle. It wasn't about the money. I think he needed to be the guy. And we don't know exactly when the Ponzi began, but he played fast and loose with the rules right from the get-go. Uh, you know, there's a famous story which we talk about in the in the show. Um, he started off. You know, his father-in-law had an accounting firm in the early '60s, and in those days, accountants often, you know, helped their clients trade money kind of unofficially. And his father-in-law saw that Bernie. Had a knack for trading stocks, and he and he sent his clients, his accounting firm clients, to Bernie, and Bernie would buy and sell stocks. <clears throat> and there was a big market crash, one of the biggest in history, in 1962, and Bernie was wiped out. He lost all of his clients' money in a very short period of time, <clears throat> and he went to his father-in-law, and he borrowed thirty thousand dollars, which for a guy in his mid-twenties in the early 60s, was a lot of money. He borrowed $30,000 from his father-in-law and gave all of his clients back their money, telling them that he had anticipated the market crash, had gotten out just before the crash, and here's all your money. And of course, his clients were ecstatic, thinking he was a genius, because he had made the fundamental decision that he'd rather be a liar than a failure.
2: That seems the really the really striking... I think you nail it. And it's the first episode of the Netflix series, Liar vs. Failure. And that seems to really nail his motivation, just like you were saying. He'd, he'd rather be a liar than a failure. He doesn't want to fail. That's He almost seems to have stumbled into the Ponzi just because he wants to keep that reputation as someone who's smarter than everyone else as an investor.
0: I will definitely say, as you know, from watching your documentary, I definitely got the impression, I don't know if this was deliberate or not, Um that basically, after borrowing that thirty thousand dollars and making every, all of the clients whole on paper, that basically that was the date at which he never once again he never again did an actual investment trade. He never actually invested anyone's money from then on in, and that whatever account balances that he conveyed to people from then on in were not, you know, adding up the amount of securities in their account, because there weren't any securities in their account, that it was all just fictional at that point. Is is that the correct impression?
1: Yes and no. We don't know. It's a, mis- it's a mystery as to when the official Ponzi scheme began. I believe it began quite early, maybe as early as that seminal event, uh, because he clearly demonstrated uh, his ability to play with the rules and to lie to people. Um, He claims, interestingly, that his Ponzi didn't begin until the late 90s when his market-making business was nearing insolvencies. So it's a little more complicated to say if he had just focused on the straight and narrow, he would have been a wealthy guy, because the market-making business did get very competitive. Electronic trading actually ended up biting him and others in terms of the bid and ask. And he did spend lavishly to hire a lot of people in his business. So maybe he could have, you know, been a little more economical in how he ran that business, but he was running into financial trouble. And so he, he claims he took investment money from his investment advisory, uh, and channeled it into uh, his legitimate business to shore up the legitimate business.
0: There's no doubt he did that. But the the, the real question is like these improbably even investment returns that he got from the mid 60s to the mid 90s, you know, for 30 years going up 10% every year, like it beggars belief that those were real.
1: Oh, oh yeah. My, fee- my feeling is that the Ponzi started, you know, as early as the 60s, probably in the 70s. And, of course, he claims that it was a temporary thing, which is another trait of a serial killer, by the way, is this rationalization and justification because you think somehow it'll all work out.
3: So what was your starting point for the documentary? You know, we're all financial journalists, and sometimes it's very hard to articulate to the public why financial crimes are important, why they're compelling. You know, you start going into the details and people's eyes glaze over. And this doesn't have quite the drama that, you know, a serial killer documentary would. So so how did you approach covering something like this that could be, to some people, feel it could feel esoteric and not very drama I
1: think if you watch the show and the compliment I've gotten from the show is that people for the first time seem to understand certain certain ideas. So I'm a bit of a stock market geek. I will admit that I spend probably a half hour every morning on CNBC and looking at my my account so uh, in addition to being a documentary filmmaker i you know i have been investing for as long as i can remember and you know i am a bit of a stock market junkie i guess you could say and to me i've always marveled at the idea that you know this guy did it alone that my starting point from this was no no he was enabled jp morgan chase for example you know the one checking account called the famous 703 of, account where billions of dollars flowed through it, had a look into an account that should have triggered suspicious activity reports. You know, anytime there's an unexplained transaction over $10,000, the banker, it's, you know, by statute, you know, the Bank Secrecy Act, you're supposed to know your customer, you're supposed to be able to make sense out of every transaction. And for years, JP. Morgan had billions of dollars with you know transactions going back and forth without counterparties and without really any logic. And do I think JP. Morgan knew there was a Ponzi scheme? I don't. But I think there was such failure on the part of the SEC, on a part on the part of institutions like Chase. That to me, this is a cautionary tale because we have fraud every five to seven years in this country. And the seeds of fraud are always the same. Somebody selling something that sounds too good to be true, like Sam Bankman fried or Bernie Madoff. And because of greed, the people who know better look the other way. All of those, I mean, Bernie had about 70 hedge funds, feeder funds and about 200 funds, in Europe, that we're all feeding him money, people in the business taking other people's money and sending it to Bernie without doing the most basic uh, due diligence. So that this, we see this happen every five, seven years, massive financial fraud because people look the other way because they're making too much money.
0: Well, this is the classic thing: if you can't cheat an honest man, right? The idea that, like, if you're going to run a Ponzi the way you do that is by selling to the greed of your victims, right? You you, you will only sell to, to the greedy, and then the greedy get their, you know, condign Um The interesting thing about M- Madoff, of course, being, being that, like, he was never, su- like, you know, he wasn't promising to double anyone's money you know as emily says it was just these steady 10 percent returns yes but
1: just to be clear when we talk about victims of madoff there's two levels of victims there's the mom and pop who were handing money over to re- respectable quote-unquote funds like the fairfield greenwich hedge fund that you're hiring them to do the due diligence for you so when you hand money either directly to bernie as a as a non professional, or you're handing money to a feeder fund, those victims, I think, are blameless. And in fact, a lot of them who talk, who are in the show talk about the the as you mentioned, the returns weren't so outsized that they were greedy. The people who were greedy were the people who knew better. I mean, look, Goldman Sachs decided not to trade with Bernie in his investment advisory. They obviously traded, I think, with his market making business, but. Uh, a number of financial institutions would not get involved in his hedge fund because they knew it was was, something was wrong but too many people did didn't question it when in fact i mean just the simple fact for example because it's an options-based strategy to produce the results that he needed to produce would have involved more options than are in existence at the cboe you know the chicago board of options exchange uh anybody if Harry Markopoulos, the whistleblower, can figure that out in ten minutes, people who are trading with him should have tra- should have figured that
0: out. The echo there of, you know, like he claimed to be doing all of this incredibly lucrative trading in the market, but no one in the market ever saw him. The echo there is, is Jeffrey Epstein, right? Who claimed to be investing lots of people money was this like super successful hedge fund manager, but no one in the market ever traded with him. That is true. <laughs>
3: Why why do you think it took the SEC so long to actually take investigating him seriously?
1: I have no words to describe the ineptitude that happened in this case. You know, five times, Harry Markopoulos, who was working for a competitive company, he's a mathematician and and was tasked with creating new products, new hedge fund products. His bosses wanted him to create a competitive product because Madoff was— getting such great results. And he saw it within five minutes. He looked at the brochure, saw that the returns were 96% of the time. Bernie had a positive year, which is just impossible in finance. Looked at the options strategy and thought the strategy was too conservative to produce these kinds of results and, and repeatedly went to the SEC five times over eight years with a list of 30 red flags and they completely ignored him. In fact, the most amazing thing happened, and and had had they paid attention, it would have saved billions of dollars. But the most mind boggling uh, thing that happened with the SEC, it was in 2006, finally, because of so many complaints, the SEC started pressuring Bernie to give them some information. And so he decided to kind of disarm them and go to their office on a Friday afternoon. They asked him for his DTC account number, which is the depository trust company, which is the custodian for any brokerage firms, you know, massive amount of securities gives them the people he's supposedly trading these options with. And he thinks his goose is cooked. He thinks by Monday he's going to be hauled off. But Inexplicably, the SEC does not even pick up the phone to call the, the the depository trust company and say, "Hey, Bernie Madoff, can you just check to see if there's $50 billion worth of securities in his account?" We're just checking. We're the SEC. Had they had they done that, the 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 DTC would have said, "No, no, we don't have any, <laughs> we don't have $50 billion worth of securities." I mean, it's just. It's, it's inexcusable. And so it went on for another two years, and the, and the Ponzi went from like $40 billion at that point to $64 billion, at the, you know, when the, the scariest part of the story to me as it relates to him being caught is that I don't think he would have been caught had there not been a once in a century black swan event called the financial crisis, you know, had, had there not been a mortgage meltdown where everyone was calling in their money, I don't think Bernie would have
2: been caught. A lot of what you just said makes me think about the regulatory push against crypto companies now and Bitcoin, which seems to be much more intense now that the bottom's kind of fallen out of those companies. Then finally, the SEC seems to have woken up and is going after a lot of the players. But but too late.
1: But too late. I mean, after, after a couple of collapses. Now, I mean, it's a little slippery. to You know, crypto is not the same as a Ponzi scheme. Crypto, there is, you know crypto in and of itself is not fraudulent, but it has invited a ton of fraud and it has invited Ponzi schemes within crypto. So it's a little, you know, it's not an exact compar- comparison. Like well, I mean, I don't, no, no. don't want to say crypto big, is fraudulent, you know.
0: Well, I mean, there, there were definitely frauds in crypto. There's no oh, doubt. Oh, yeah, about, without, without, like, without question. And it lends itself to that kind of activity. But yeah. the interesting thing about crypto is that at least up until very recently no one has ever considered it mm. to be safe people who invest in crypto have always known that they were putting their money at risk by doing so it was notoriously volatile from day 1 and you know as we saw as we have seen over and over again like for instance in the 2000 stock market crash people lost trillions of dollars in the stock market And the effect of that was tiny because that was like people putting risk capital to work in a risky asset of like a high-flying tech stocks. And it went up and it went down. And it was kind of no harm, no foul, you know, unless you work in the industry. Um, Whereas in 2008, it was safe assets that wound up getting blown up. And when people have money that they think of as being perfectly safe and can't afford to lose and that goes, then that's where panic appears. And we just saw that with, you know, that weekend of March the 9th um, with uninsured depositors at Silicon Valley Bank. They were like, we thought that money was safe and we can't afford to lose it. And what's super interesting to me in the case of Madoff is that on the one hand, it was a hedge fund. You know, people who invest money in hedge funds, they're meant to be super sophisticated investors and they are meant to be deliberately taking their risks with their money, and therefore it shouldn't be particularly harmful if they lose that money. On the other hand, the way it was sold and the way it was bought was as a safe investment with, as you said, you know, relatively immediate, you can access your liquidity whenever you like. It has it never goes down, you know, and and he Sold it to people with much lower risk appetite than your typical hedge fund investor.
1: You know, there's some basic rules of investing that people should you know follow, and the number one rule is like diversification. But there were so many victims who invested not 10 percent of their money, not 20 percent of their money, but all of their money. I can't imagine giving one person all of my money. And yet he evoked that kind of trust. And sure, it would have been bad if some of these retirees had lost 10 or 20% of their money, but they lost everything because they they so trusted this guy.
3: And you you have a moment in the documentary where Madoff is on camera saying, you know, we actually tried to give some of these people their money back and the clients were very resistant to it. Which is start. Well,
1: that's 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 an example of victim blaming, you know, like he they, they didn't want their money back. You know, some of that is true. It's like, oh, I had major investors who could never be satisfied. I had these guys wanted me to invest. You know, he had to be the guy, you know, again, kid from Queens, looking across the river to to shiny Manhattan. And I don't think that, you know his father was a was a fail a business failure, and so he just feared failure, and wanted to be the guy that everyone looked up to.
0: This episode of Slate Money is brought to you by Wondery, which is a podcast company, and it makes a podcast called the best one yet, and it is a daily podcast hosted by Nick and Jack, who serve up three of the most interesting business news stories every day and why you need to know them in just 20 minutes. And for more deep dive and daily business content, listen on Wondery, the destination for business podcasts, with shows like The Best One Yet, How I Built This, Business Wars, and many more. Wondery means business.
2: Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply.
1: It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria
2: Cash.
0: The evil genius question, like this ability to engender an astonishing degree of trust among an astonishing degree of, uh, astonishingly range of individuals. There were a large number, a very large number of individuals who trusted him with all of their money. What, I mean, you know, how did he do that?
1: Well, again, I keep coming back to my favorite theme, which is uh, he possessed one of the most interesting aspects of a serial killer as a financial serial killer, and that is Bundy and Gacy and most serial killers, you know, present themselves as likable, charismatic people. You know, we want to, you know, we want to think that serial killers emerge from the shadows with blood dripping from their fangs and looking evil 24 seven, because that gives us a measure of comfort that, oh, we can identify a serial killer and therefore be uh, avoid the fate of becoming a victim. But the truth is, in my 30 years of true crime, the people who do evil in this world are the people you least expect and most often trust. You know, the pedophilic priest, that's the height of evil. Uh, you know, Ted Bundy. I mean, Bundy uh, famously, like his, there was a composite sketch in the Seattle paper in the early days of the Bundy case and identification of a tan Volkswagen bug as the vehicle of this potential suspect. And all of Ted Bundy's friends in Seattle said, oh God, isn't that a coincidence? This guy kind of looks like Ted and Ted also has a tan vehicle. Beatle, but Ted could never do these things. That is how serial killers operate. John Wayne Gacy was the life of the party, threw big parties in his neighborhood, hired local kids. We want to think that evil people act evil all the time, but they generally actually are the opposite and they lure you in.
2: I think part of that is we have certain expectations for certain kinds of people. So, you know, not terrible looking, youngish, middle-aged white men, we're supposed to trust them because those are the good guys in our in our culture. Um, so when you say it's the person who least expected, it, it's like those are the people who can get away with the most because those are the people we trust the most as a society and as our culture. And I think that's part of what's happening with Bernie Madoff. He like checks the pr- he checks all your priors. You know, he's like successful, lauded for whatever he did in '87. We trust him, of course. Like he gets those returns, he f- he fits all the bills, you would never be suspicious of him. The people that we tend to be suspicious of, it- it's sort of, then they do a crime, you're like, well, of course. You know, it's just, it just has to do with who gets to be innocent.
0: It's people who look like Martin Shkreli. Like no one, everyone always suspected Martin Shkreli. But, but one of the curious twists here is precisely the fact that there were so many intermediaries, right? If this is a case of, you know, someone trying to build up trust and and being trusted and using his, you know, psychological skills to, to, to get that kind of, you know, money, then I would have imagined that he would be out there schmoozing his clients. But in fact, as you say, most of the clients wind up coming through Fair, some you know some faceless thing called Fairfield Greenwich or some other intermediary, and I've I I don't entirely understand how me giving my money to Fairfield Greenwich is because Bernie Madoff as a human is so incredibly in, inherently trustworthy that you know maybe I don't even know him. Probably I don't even know him.
1: I would say a, a good chunk of the money was directly invested in Bernie, and a good chunk was. Through these feeder funds, and you're right. The the person who gives his money to a feeder fund is feels lucky to get in because that's the reputation he had. But the 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 duping is the duping of the people who who really should know better. Fairfield Greenwich, they really should have known better. They should have done much more due diligence. Um, and so it's that power he had over the financial community. And some people, you know called bullshit on it and and aided and abetted by regulators who just didn't seem to care.
0: And there is there is a parallel with the legitimate fund of funds market, where the way that fund of funds get any customers at all is by saying, if you invest with us, then we are going to be able to put your money in, you know, name your hot VC or your hot hedge fund. If you try and do that yourself, you'll they'll never accept you. And... And that kind of like everyone wants to get past the VIP rope, um, even when, as we all know, the other side of the VIP rope is a miserable dark room. And you, and no, you know, once you're there, you're like, why did I want to get here so badly?
1: I mean, there are way, way too many red flags for for anyone in the financial industry who dealt with him to have any excuse you know not enough options were in existence when you bought a stock from bernie you never got like if i if i go on my schwab account today and buy one share of at and uh i will get an annual report and a, and a proxy statement you know and none of bernie's clients ever got that kind of paperwork uh, they're just, you know, the split strike conversion strategy is not that complicated. It's like you buy a stock and you hedge your upside and your downside with options. People, he sold it like it was some mysterious thing. Um, the returns, you know, a straight, a straight arrow up. Uh, it just that to me is the tragedy. And coming back to your question about, you know, what was my entry point? To me, this is a cautionary tale for people that they should be very cautious about where they put their money. I mean, Wall Street is not your friend. You know, Unlike the retirement commercials where they're gonna put your arm around you and, and guide you through and be your buddy, people need to be cautious. Uh, you know, I, I don't think, there are many great firms on Wall Street. Schwab is trustworthy, with Fidelity, Vanguard, whatever. But if you don't understand what you're investing in and if basic due diligence isn't being done, like you should run for the hills.
0: So Joe, one of one of the villains in your documentary is the SIPC, the Securities Investment Protector Corporation or something like that. Um like so let me ask you this directly. The reason that I trust Schwab as a place to hold my stocks, or I would hold trust Schwab if I had stocks to hold. Um is not because I think that Schwab is inherently trustworthy, but because it has SIPC insurance, and I know that even if Schwab runs off with all of my money, the SIPC will um, is is insuring it. And you know they did that with MF Global and other you know failures of, of security firms. Um, you are much ruder about the SIPC because they've famously failed to ensure the accounts at, at Madoff. So when you hold your stocks at Schwab, is it more because you trust Schwab and less because you trust the SIPC?
1: That's a um, complicated question for which there's not a simple answer, so bear with me. We knock SIPC in the show because at the time the funding for SIPIC was a joke, $150 a year per firm, oh not per client, but per firm. And that's, and that's supposed to cover losses. So that's one problem that's, I believe has been corrected. The second problem was that SIPIC, in a court decision, um, argued the, uh, the Ponzi scheme, Ponzi scheme exception. And so SIPIC it was ruled that sipic is not responsible for paying back its customers because a ponzi scheme is not included but that's exactly when you need sipic protection is for that level of fraud the other aspect you asked me how do i feel about my money being at schwab well you know part of schwab's guarantee if you look is that regardless of sipic they will cover your securities beyond the sipic limit of t- I think, is a half a million dollars.
2: I've been ruminating in the back of my brain as we're sitting here about is Bernie, was Bernie made off evil? And I, I don't think he was evil. I just think he got in over his head and he, and the results of what he did, you could argue were, bad. you don't have to argue. They were obviously bad and hurt a lot of people, but was he evil? I mean, he was kind of a good father. We know this because his sons turned him in, right? He raised, he raised good kids.
1: No? <laughs> no. No, I, I so disagree with you on everything there. Um, what he did was absolutely evil. He lied for a living. He was a total phony. He took he took money from widows knowingly and used it for his own purposes. And his sons t- turned them in because they had to. If they didn't turn them in, they would be accomplices. I mean, that was they debated what to do and they spoke to their father-in-law. I'm, I'm a little hazy on. The detail one of one of their father in laws um, was a lawyer who advised them. You you know, you're an accomplice to an ongoing fraud. You must turn him in, or you you know, because Bernie was talking about writing final bonus checks to loyal employees, and that that's ill-gotten gains, and to distribute ill-gotten gains that they that the boys now know about would make them accessories to a crime. So then going to the FBI was not an act of Good child rearing. It was it was an act of self preservation, you know.
2: I still would argue that this is not an evil person. That he he did wrong things. He acted immorally and unethically. But I he probably thought he was doing the right thing when his.
0: I, I'm, I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm, I'm, I'm with so, Joe. I'm, so, I'm, I'm with Joe. I'm sorry. First of all, first of all, it's
1: how you define evil. But if you're going to take the the last savings of Elie Wiesel a holocaust yeah. survivor knowing knowing it's a ponzi scheme knowing you're not investing if you're going to go to yeshiva university or any other jewish organization and act like you're going to improve their philanthropy but then wipe them out but he wasn't I'm sorry, planning on the
2: wiping out part he thought it would go on forever and it could have gone on forever had there been no financial crisis it wasn't his fault the mortgage market was all messed up he could have just gone on forever Taking people's money and giving it to other
3: people.
0: <laughs> this is this this I, podcast. I think, this podcast. I attention.
1: I think you need to become a, a defense lawyer.
3: I think Emily's arguing that he was a you know malignant narcissist yeah. with delusions of grandeur or something. It's just as distinguished from evil. I
0: I I, I don't <laughs> see that distinction. I have to admit. Yeah, I
2: don't think people are inherently evil. Maybe that's my problem.
0: Oh, you're you're just like even like there's no such thing as an evil person.
2: I mean, you can pull the Hitler exception on me, I guess, but if you want to be cheap.
1: (laughs) (laughs) That's an interesting um, idea that actually I I don't totally disagree with about the the nature of human sickness. And when I've done shows about Dahmer, Gacy, Bundy, any attempt to show them as being complex human beings is immediately knee-jerk, criticized as how can you be you know, saying anything other right. than these guys are evil. So, so I, share, I share some of the sentiment of where you're coming from, but what he did was evil. Whether he was evil, you know, you could say he was sick, just like you could say Jeffrey Dahmer was sick, um, but yeah. what he did was evil.
0: I want to finish with a slightly weird, another one of those weird metaphysical questions, which is like... What what is a loss? When you say that people lost money, um, you know, if I invest a thousand dollars with Bernie Madoff and I get all of these periodic statements saying it becomes 1100 eleven hundred and twelve hundred and thirteen hundred, and eventually it's worth like two thousand dollars, and I and then I wake up one morning and it's gone to zero. Have I lost a thousand dollars or have I lost two thousand dollars?
1: That's a good question. It's lost opportunity, you know, Um, just before rates were being hiked by the Fed, I bought a bunch of long term bonds because I heard there was a chance that interest rates were going to go negative. I bought into that narrative. So so I have I have (laughs) I have some money that's, you know, that was bought before interest rates uh, were jacked up. So of course those bonds are worth way less. So I've lost the opportunity, you know, there's financial opportunity loss. Um, but if I hold it to maturity, I get that money back. But what about all that lost opportunity mm-hmm. at a higher rate? You know, that, that counts for something, you know, at the end of the, at the end, at the end of the day, you know, The actual amount of money that flowed into Bernie's hedge fund was 19 billion. On paper, it was 64 billion. So if you've been taking money out and paying taxes on it
0: and thinking you have this nest egg, I think that is a loss. Yeah, that's right. People
2: took the money out. Yeah.
0: Because one of the curious things about the way it all shook out in the end is that almost no one lost money on a sort of money in, money out basis.
1: I would Um, disagree
0: with that comment. (laughs) <laughs> okay. Who, who lost well, money on sadly,
1: that? Well, sadly, it was kind of like a reverse Ponzi scheme where the older investors were generally, the, the longer term investors were generally the, the mom and pops who were taking money out to pay for weddings, colleges, all that stuff. And when SIPIC decided not to, you know, that they didn't have to pay people back, they did hire Irving Picard, the trustee who managed all the clawbacks and the card actually did an amazing job of, of recovering about 14 billion of 19 billion. But the older investors who were generally the single, you know, the individuals who already suffered a loss were victimized again, because that money, if you were a net winner, meaning if you had taken money, more money out than you had put in over the years, that money was clawed back from you. And given to the quote net losers who had put more money in but the people who had put more money into this fraud were were the newer money was all the hedge funds so you saw a lot of with the madoff case and the clawbacks you saw a lot of into indi- money being clawed back from individuals and being sent to the losers who were generally institutions so Five billion was never recovered, but a lot of the individual investors got screwed twice, and that's that's. I don't think I don't think there's any. But
0: but just to be clear, those were individual investors who had taken out more money than they had put in, but they did it slowly over time. Right,
1: and paid taxes on it, and were counting on it. But also, just to be clear, like if your father had done that, and then the daughter inherits the account. Mm -hmm they would claw back the father's spending from the daughter's account. So some people really got screwed. It was, you know, I don't know another way to have done it, you know, but it was very hard on individual investors to be re-victimized in
0: that way. On which note, I think we should, we should probably a sensible place to to wrap this up because it you know comes back to this idea that you can't really have a dastardly crime unless there are victims and so yes we need to so there were victims they're important and joe thank you for coming on this show this has been incredibly illuminating cool and thanks to patrick Fort for producing and we'll be back on saturday with a regular slate money